Okay, we're in um, a series called Blessed Life, and the series goes to Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a Bible or New Testament, go with me to Matthew 5. This is the opening sermon Jesus gives. It's the first sermon that we have written down. may not have been his first sermon, but it's the first one written down. And what we're looking at is, are the blessedness points of Matthew chapter 5, and these are just the introduction to the sermon. The sermon actually covers chapters 5, 6, and 7. We're only going to cover half of chapter 5, and it's going to take us eight weeks. It's just it's a marvelous book. But <clears throat> today's lesson takes us to blessed are those who are comforted. And why do they feel this need for comfort? Because they are mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Verse 4. You'd all have to admit, life is hard, isn't it? Life is tough. You watch the evening news and you realize it is really bad. And, and just when you think we can make some headway, we seem to make steps backward. We would love to make three or four steps forward. Wanda and I, a few weeks ago, we're, it's our tradition in the evening to watch evening news. A few weeks ago, she said, do you mind if we just don't watch? There's so much sadness there's, there's tragedy everywhere we go, defeats, disappointment, and doldrums. And how do you rise above that? Well, Jesus gave to us a very simple piece, verse 4. Blessed are those, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Comforted. We all want that comfort. We really do not want to mourn. It seems to make no sense. How can the happy be sad or the sad be happy? And blessed are those who mourn. No one wants to mourn. But some of us in the room are here today and you're overwhelmed with economic issues or relational strife. Some of us in the room have spiritual warfare going on. Some of us have job issues and physical pain. Others regret the decisions of their past. Let me just begin by saying th three things. One is God does not expect me to be happy all the time. He just doesn't. Singy-songy, skippy-dancy, happy, limericky kind of Christians, are, they're nice, but they're, they're for the Turner Broadcasting Network. They're for old movies, channels. It's not real life. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes put it this way, there's a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to weep and a time to, to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time in your life to be absolutely happy. There's a time, and it's okay, to mourn. It's all right. There's a lot of sadness out there, and the only normal response is grief because of facing it. And what the Bible says about mourning your losses or mourning the good things that didn't happen to you, you wanted these good things to happen, they didn't happen to you, or you mourn or you grieve over your own sin, you grieve over the suffering of the world, it's just awful. We turn on the evening news and you can't stand it. Have you ever had moments you just can't take anymore? Please, just give me someone getting a kitty out of a tree just give me some closing moment of something happy because life is so oppressive. God doesn't expect you to be happy all the time. Number two, God doesn't expect me to deny my feelings, to somehow just not admit that I'm not happy. Grief is actually essential to our health. It's part of holistic, spiritual, mental, emotional health. If you never grieve, get this, if you never grieve, you're probably either out of touch with yourself or you're out of touch with reality or you're out of touch in life and you just don't care. And if you don't care, we're in real trouble. The psalmist put it this way, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. 
Can you identify with that? You ever had a day like that? You just felt like your, your bones were wasting away. He said, though my groaning, it threw my groaning all day long. I, I groaned through the day. It felt like my life was wasting away. Grief comes to visit you. And you know what happens is you're fine when you're busy and you're fine when there's other people around, but then when, when the room empties, grief comes back. Have you ever experienced that before? When you're left to yourself and your own thoughts, you go back to the grief moment or the grief thought. That's why oftentimes when I preach a funeral, I'll say to the widower or the widower, you need to go home with a group of people. You need to eat a big meal. You need to chat, tell some stories. You need to take a nap in the easy chair, and then you need to get up and eat again and chat some more. And then I'll tell the extended family, don't leave her alone. Don't leave him alone for very long. Why? Because when you're left alone, you're left alone to those thoughts, that's where you go back to. And God doesn't expect me to deny those feelings. Thirdly, God doesn't expect me to carry the weight of the world by myself. He just says, you can't do that. It's why you have to cast all your anxiety or your care upon the Lord. Why? Because he really does care for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. And that's, by the way, a great verse we should memorize. You want to memorize one this week? Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? He cares. He really does care. So I can go to him. And it's being totally honest with God. Last week in our, in our lesson, we learned blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When I realize that I'm spiritually bankrupt, then God visits me with his blessing. Blessings are on the way. But if I'm not honest with myself, or if I think I can carry the weight of the world, then God says, okay, you carry the weight, see how long that lasts. You, you can't do it. You're saying, well, I can take it, because you know, here's what happens. We all want to be the hero. We say, I can, I can do this, and so we gear up for it. And here's the problem. You may not keep count of the wrongs in your life or the injustices in your life or the sadness in your life, but your stomach does. You do know this, right? And eventually your body will give out one place or another. It will show up. It's just a matter of time. So I remain utterly silent. Psalm 39, if you're taking notes, great one to write down. 39 verses 2 and 3. So I remain silent, the psalmist wrote, not even saying anything good. But my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. What happens is your anguish grows to this point. Now you're getting angry. Now it's no longer grief. Now you're ticked. And maybe at other people, maybe at God. And, and we want to say, well, I can handle this. I can handle the mega grief. But you cannot do that over the long haul. Sooner or later, you, you will fold. And it's when you fold and cast your cares on him, that's when you realize he really does care for you. Anybody been to the hospital before, just to the emergency room? Anybody? I'm not going to ask what for, okay? It's okay just to go, and just to check it out, whatever. Have you ever had them ask you, you're in pain? Uh, give me your, you're in pain. Or do you hurt? Everywhere. <laughs> I'm in the emergency room for crying out loud. It's everywhere. What? You know, and so you, you, you get in, and they say, well, could you give us a number? Have you had this? They get, give us a number. I mean, I'm just going to give you some hints right now of what to do and what not to do. Don't say one or two. They will give you a baby aspirin and send you home. Just say, uh, do you have it? Well, just sort of. I just thought I'd cruise by, you know. It didn't seem to be a lot of cars in here right now. So, well, I'll, I'll come in today to the emergency room. No, one or two, they're just going to send you home. On the other hand, if you say you're a 10 all the time, you know what they're going to call? 
They're going to call the narcotics agent because they know you're a drug addict, okay? So if you go, what's your number? 11. I only said to 10. 11. Yeah. Can I have some morphine? Probably they're calling the cops right now, okay? So don't, don't ever do that. So, I, so don't use 10, maybe not even 9. And I don't even use 8 because I know I could walk in with a busted leg. And if I lay down, and you know how they, you know, they had a private curtain, right? That curtain just buffers nothing, Right? And so you, oh, the guy next to you, oh, you know, well, the worst thing I want is a pregnant lady on the other side of the curtain. Oh, because I go eight, she'll pull the curtain back, go, I'll show you what eight is. No, you're nowhere close to eight. Yeah. Okay, I'm not doing eight. So seven, seven's a good number. So the number you use from now on, every you go to emergency room, seven. They'll get you some meds, they won't kick you out, but they won't arrest you either. It's kind of a middle ground. This is all free material, by the way worth what you paid for it so so you realize when the bible was written there were words for grief sorrow pain anxiety mourning m-o-u-r-n-i-n-g there were actually nine different greek terms that were used nine of them giving the degrees it's it's the difference between your child walking in on you and saying um mom or daddy i don't feel well that's what they say. Or, and then you say, are you feverish? Or are you diseased? It's one's a little worse than the other, wouldn't you say? Yes. I don't feel well. I'm sick. Or I have the plague. You know, those are degrees. Are they? Now, they're all within the same category of not feeling well. But plague is certainly bigger, stronger. Okay? When Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, Guess what degree he used? Degree number nine. He said, blessed are you when you have to look up to see the bottom. Blessed are you when you are so down, you are so out of energy, you have nothing in reserve and no way to move and you can't get away from the pain and you can't deny it. Blessed are you because then you will find comfort like never before. Okay? Okay? Now, how does he do that? I'm going to give you seven ways he does that. Number one is this. God uses our brokenness, this pain, this mourning, this depth, darkness of the soul. He uses not a partly cloudy day, not I'm not feeling well, not um, I'm just a little bit low, I'm not on top of my game. No, he uses the dark night of the soul, and you don't know what to do next. He uses that to draw close. And what God does is God draws us close to himself. Get this, number one, God draws us close to himself. Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. If you're brokenhearted over something you brought on yourself or something that just happened to you, know this, God is close to you. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. When you're grieving, God may seem like he's at a distance. He's never been closer. Why? Because he actually comes in close to the brokenhearted. Hebrews tells us, never will I leave you, God says. Never will I forsake. I'm not letting go of you. And even in your greatest pain, your greatest shame, even if it's self-inflicted pain, and sometimes we're distant from God because we've created the distance. And what does God want us to do? He wants to pull us back in. Between services, a man came to me, and it's, it's an interesting piece in ancient Hebrew Old Testament. 
uh, from the Psalms, but you know how it'll talk about he'll shelter you under his wing? It's the idea, it's like your chickadees coming up under. Have you ever had your kids scared? Whoa, they come in up underneath you. Have you ever had a stormy night? You wake up and there's like three or four more people in this bed. And they've all come sleeping at the foot or beside you and everywhere else. What, what are they doing? They're coming up underneath you. That's the Old Testament. That's the Hebrew version of this. He comes along. And that's the word for comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, para, cleat, come along, para, alongside, parallel, to come alongside. That's the term. That the Holy, that'll be the name for the Holy Spirit in John. Isn't that cool? This, this picture that he creates for us to say, God is not distant. Number one, he draws close. Number two, God grieves with us. He doesn't just say, I'm there. He says, I'm here and I care. He grieves with us. Plant life and animal kingdom, they just don't grieve, not like humans do, because we're made in the image of God. We grieve over loss and tragedy and injustice and trouble in our lives. And, and the prophecy of the Savior 800 years before the Savior came was this. Isaiah put it. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Isaiah writes this. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Wow. And not only to broke up the brokenhearted, but to proclaim the freedom for the, the captives, to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He just goes on and on saying, this is who the Savior is and this is what he'll do. He will come close to and he will care about, he will grieve with the brokenhearted. Now, 800 years later, Jesus shows up in person. Guess what his first reading is when he goes into the temple? Isaiah. And what does he say? The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And this is the year of the favor of the Lord. And I will turn the oil of joy instead of mourning. You'll have the oil of joy instead of that of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. He begins to read this from Isaiah and then he, he sets down the scrolls and he says, today you're seeing it happen. In other words, he says, I'm there, it's really happening. And if you ever wondered, it isn't just something that he said, it's something that he did. Because when you read John chapter 11, Jesus will lose a loved one, the guy will die and what does Jesus do? He doesn't like rationalize it away or say, well, at least that's over with. No, no, what he does, I find it very significant. Jesus weeps. He cries over the loss of a friend. And, when, and then his friends cried, and then they said to each other, look, he really loved him. He, you see, Jesus not only comes close, but he actually cares. He grieves with you. And crying is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign, really, of humanity. We have a Savior who goes with us into the grief. Sometimes it's just nice to know that you're not alone in the midst of the grief. So we have a God in heaven who draws near to the brokenhearted. We have a, a, a God who grieves with us. Number three, God gives us a spiritual family. A spiritual family. Um, You've heard the saying before, a joy shared is a joy doubled, and a grief shared is a grief halved. You were never meant to carry the weight alone, and so you were given an assembly, a body of called out ones, with the same faith, with the same hope, the same love, and so we rejoice with those who rejoice, Romans chapter 12, and we mourn with those who mourn. We live in harmony with each other. We're not proud. We try to live humble lives and associate with anybody, even of low position. We are not conceited. Why? 
We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We, we need that family. You need a relationship. You say, well, I go to church, and that's good. I want you to keep coming to church. But more than that, you need a smaller group of people who will know you and will ask you really good questions and who live in community with you, and you'll have relationship that allows you to be open and honest. You need people around who will check your pride, your conceit, but also rejoice with you in your joy and grieve with you in your sorrow. So in, in short, you just need, you need a community group. You need a small group. If you're not in a group, use your card, connection card and sign up for one now. We'll help you get in, into one. And some groups will actually take what I'm preaching now and they'll, they'll take that material and develop it more and study more off of it or spin out some rabbit trails or go deeper, apply it. Other groups will read and study something entirely different. That's okay. We don't care. We just care that you get together and study the word and pray because then you're going to build relationships. And in those relationships, you'll know you have a spiritual family because you're in one of two places right now. You're either in the place where you're doing pretty well, so you need to be helping somebody, or you're not doing well and you need some help. Either way, you need a spiritual family. And God gives to us in the, in the grief he gives us a mechanism called this, this church family, but also gives us a sense of real community. I, I'm reminded of the of this story of Laura's story. He's a singer-songwriter. Uh, Laura is, uh, is a, a Dove Award winner. She's written some great music, some that we've actually sung here. She uh, was in a, a group that was very successful, and she was kind of a regional star, if you will, in the Christian world and then left that group to start her own music ministry. She did some stuff with Chris Tomlin for a few years, married a guy by the name of Martin, and they were gonna you know, get married, live happily ever after, have children and go on the road and, and continue singing until Martin discovered he had a brain tumor, a brain tumor, and here they are as a young married couple, and that was not in her plan. And um, miraculously, the Lord's worked in their lives and... and uh, but it was not a happy road for years. And it's in that experience that she wrote these words that we have sung. We pray for blessings and we pray for peace, for comfort, for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing and for prosperity. We pray that your mighty hand will ease our suffering. And all the while you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're here? What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom and we do your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness, we doubt your love, as if every promise from your word is not enough. And all the while, you hear each desperate plea and long that we would have faith to believe. Because what if our blessings come through raindrops? What if our healing comes through tears? And what if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes for us to know that you are near? And what if the trials of this life are the mercies in disguise? Martin and uh, Laura knew. We, we know them as, you know, only in the public way. 
And we always think their life is somehow better, fuller, happier. And yet God seems to speak in blessing forms in, lives, in, in their lives in a way that we would never want. And for them, they view it as a blessing in disguise. And God visits you, and, and you need that church family. And, and that's what Martin and Laura really recognized, is they needed to stay close in to their church family. Number four, God uses grief to grow us up. God uses grief to help us grow. And C.S. Lewis put it this way. God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. He whispers to us in our pleasure. He shouts to us in our pain. He uses pain to get our attention. And when we bend the knee and we're in a position to look up to God, it'll change our perspective. Maybe all that God is doing in the pain is getting our attention. You ever done this? You've done everything with a problem that you can possibly do, and then all of a sudden you just go, well, there's nothing left I can do. All, all we can do now is pray. You ever done that? I have. I'll admit it. Oh, I've tried everything. Oh, the only thing left to do is to call on Almighty God. Why didn't we do this? Why wasn't this like step one? You know? Because we think that we can solve it. That's why. Because we think we can handle it. We are not mourning. We don't, we're not at level nine. And he's got to empty the tank of our own self stuff, of what we think we can do to fix it. And when we have exhausted our source of endurance and when our day, our energy is gone and the day is half spent, we don't have the strength for the day, the songwriter puts it, he gives more grace. But he doesn't give it until we realize we are desperate for this. He uses grief to help us, to grow us up. Now, so the very things that appear to be really bad in our lives may be there for a good reason, okay? Illustration, life of Joseph. Joseph was sold by his brothers. I have two brothers who have thought and done nasty things to me. They have never sold me. You know, I mean, I, I've almost wanted to sell them, but they've never sold me, you know? Probably because they wouldn't get much. You know, I think about it now. Just as a, a, a ding on my self-worth as I think about that. I, you know, you've, you've got a brother or sister and you, you've been pretty aggravated with him. These brothers sold him, thought he was dead. He gets thrown in jail, becomes a servant, a slave, works his way through the system. Years later, there's a famine in the land and Joseph is now a leader in the country and he has resources they need and they realize, uh-oh, our brother's still alive. Genesis chapter 50, he says, don't be afraid, I'm not gonna kill you, although I, I probably could. God did this. You meant it for harm, Joseph said. God meant it for good. Wow. If we could get God's perspective on this. God uses grief to help us grow. God uses grief to help us grow. Joseph knew his brothers would die thinking Joseph's going to kill us. He had to stop him and say, no, I think God is in this. Changes his whole perspective. God draws us close to himself. He grieves with us. He, he, that grief helps us, run, makes us run towards a, a godly family, but then it helps us to grow in the Lord. And how is God working on us now? What, what good is God up to in our lives? That's the question we need to be asking when we go through grief. 
because we know ultimately God will work it all together for good, Romans chapter 8. My job is just to love him, and he'll work that out. He'll work it out to my good, according to his good pleasure. These troubles are getting us ready for an eternal glory that will make us make this trouble in life look like nothing because the eternal glory is so worth it. And God is, I don't like this, but God's not out right now for Dave's comfort. God is out for Dave's character to grow. He's out for your character to grow. Because that's what you're going to take to heaven. You, you rarely see you know, a hearse with a U-Haul behind it, right? You don't take stuff with you to heaven. What you do take is you take some great memories, some great faith stories, and your character. That's what goes to heaven. So you want that to be primo material for heavens. So God uses these moments to help us grow. And number five, he gives me the hope of heaven. God gives me the hope of heaven. This is a life where you know, we live 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years, but it's nothing compared to heaven. And this world is not a happy place to be in. There's so much crime. There's racial strife. There's homicide and political war. You've read the papers. It's just awful what happens. We can't do anything without messing it up. We can't even play a sport without messing up. We can't run for office. You can't, you, we can't create laws. We, we are people who will refuse to get along with each other. It is an awful place to be, and it's riddled by the effect of sin. And so God gives to us heaven and says, well, there's going to be a place where justice really does roll. 1 Thessalonians 4, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who've fallen asleep, those who've died. Because you, you can grieve, but you don't grieve like those without hope. In other words, we grieve, but we grieve with hope. And we, we, we are sad for ourselves when a, when a brother or sister in the Lord dies because we're going to miss them. But we're sad for ourselves, but they're in heaven. It's a wonderful thing. I've told you this before. A few years ago, my dad went home to heaven on Easter weekend. How cool is that? He died on Saturday. Can you imagine? What's tomorrow? Sunday. <laughs> you know, but every day is there Sunday. Think about it. Every day they get together and sing, have a big banquet. It's a great day in heaven. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And if I were to call my dad back, he would say, no, I'm not coming. It's heaven, Dave. It's heaven. See, So don't... Don't think, we don't grieve that they're in some kind of distraught. They're not. They're in heaven where it's all right and just and good. We see the new heaven, new earth, Revelation 21. He wipes away every tear from our eyes. There's no more grief, no more death, no more mourning, no crying or pain. Why? All those things are done away. It's heaven. So what do we grieve over? We grieve because of our own pain in this generation. And we grieve with a sense that heaven's out in front of us. So what does God give to us? He gives us the promise of heaven. It's a wonderful thing, even in our grief. Number six, God uses the pain to, um, for us to help others. And this is really redemptive. Second Corinthians chapter one, God uses the pain for us to help others. He, he says, the God of all comfort comforts us in all of our trouble. So we're able to comfort others. So not only does he comfort us, but he helps us to comfort other people. So we get it when they're going through pain. Maybe the very pain you're going through is a pain that someone else will eventually learn from, benefit from. 
God will use the pain for you to serve others, and, and, and your greatest ministry could come from your greatest hurt, your greatest pain. Your deepest ministry could come from your deepest hurt. We think the world is, is impressed by how we handle success. No, really, the world is watching us handle our pain. Uh, Carol Kent is a, um, an award-winning author, Christian lady, has written a number of great books, conference speaker for years upon years. Priscilla Shire in her book, Life Interrupted, which is a book I highly recommend. She actually tells this story. I've heard Carol tell it as well, but Priscilla really documents it probably best. Carol and her husband have an adult son. That adult son got married to a woman. That woman had been married before. She had children from a previous relationship. That guy was an abusive guy, so she got away from him, had been alone for a while. When their son came into the picture, they got married but did not live happily ever after because the former spouse, the guy came back and was threatening to them. And we don't know what really happened. What we do know is that somehow Carol Kent's son got a gun and what he thinks may be his own self-defense against a threatening man. But at the end of the day, that man is dead and her son has the gun that was used. And he went to jail and he lost his freedom for a wife who's brand new to him and kids who weren't really his own in a defense act that he thinks he's justified, but the court doesn't see it that way. Carol would go on to say, she'd written books and she'd prayed for people and people would write her and she was quite the popular person at the end of a conference. She'd pray for people that would come down to the front and that was all well and good. But it was after that where she saw the living death of her son just decaying in jail. That when she began to understand when people would come up at the end of a conference and pour out their soul about their kids. And Carol will tell you herself, her greatest ministry came from her greatest nightmare, her greatest pain. And you would never justify that. It's a loss of a good man in jail and the loss of a life of another man. You would never declare that to be a good thing, ever. But in the midst of that, God uses it somehow for Carol to minister differently somehow. And I don't know what God's going to do in your life through your pain. I really don't. But I do know this. God oftentimes uses the greatest pain of your life to be your greatest ministry. Now, I have one more, and it's number seven, and then we're going to close in prayer. But this one is huge. This one almost trumps the other six. Are you ready? So if you haven't been listening, now it's time to dial back in. God uses mourning, number seven. God uses mourning to prompt us to turn to him. Remember where we started when I was talking about the levels of pain and grief and sorrow? The word that Jesus uses in chapter five, verse four, blessed are those who mourn. That word mourn is level nine. God takes you to that place so you are emptied of yourself so you know that you need him. He doesn't delight to do this, but he knows it is necessary in order for us to believe and be saved. He tells us later in his word, in 1 Corinthians, for instance, there's a guy who's, who's having sexual relations with his mother in, in the text. That's what it says. Probably his stepmom. Probably his physical mom died. Dad remarries. This guy's having sex out of the bounds of marriage with his, with his dad's spouse now. And 
Paul writes and says to the church, and you're proud of it. You're so accepting of it. And he said, Hadn't you, you ought to face the truth of this. This is sin, and you need to deal with it. And you need to repent of it. Well, then he writes in 2 Corinthians, he writes, I'm happy, not because I made you sorry, but that your sorrow led you to repentance. See? And here's the deal. God has those sorrowful things in your life to lead you to repentance. Now, you can either go down the path of regret or you go down the path of repentance. And if you go down the path of regret, you'll always defend your choices and your, your decisions. It'll always be someone else's fault. It's always everybody else. But if you'll own it and mourn it and empty yourself of anything that you would contribute that might be good, that godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, brings repentance that brings salvation. Get this. This is huge. You, if you go down the path of regret, you'll end in death. If you go down the path of repentance, you'll be saved. It's just that simple. You may, you may be going through a mourning process now so you can see the glorious riches of his grace, his forbearance, Romans chapter 2, his patience, his kindness, and that leads you to repentance, to trust the Lord. If you've never turned to Christ in faith, understand this. The Lord may be emptying you of yourself so you get to this point where you've tried everything and now, Lord, I need you. And that's the prayer. But you know, I'm gonna say this to Christians too. You may be saved by grace through faith, but now you're trying to live the Christian life on your own and you can't do it. And you're realizing this is one frustrating life. It's right. And if you'll empty yourself of that and repent, which is the word change your mind, change the thinking about this sin and not justify it, not defend it, not rationalize it, but face it and confess it, you'll find you'll have a a kind, forbearing, patient God who changes your mind even about the sin in your life. And it's not nearly so beautiful, it's not nearly so cute, it's not nearly so lovely or dear, but holiness really is. And when that happens, you're on the path to happiness because you have, you have mourned your life and now you can be comforted. Let's bow for prayer. Just, uh, I'm gonna ask you not to move just for a moment, just to do business with God and ask God, what, what is the sin that so easily besets me? What is it, God? And you may have three or four that, that may just all go back to one particular thing. Pride, stubbornness, angst, control. You may be here without Christ and the issue for you is to open your life to him and you, you call upon the Lord and in your own heart, you just would tell the Lord, God in heaven, I realize I, I can't save myself. I need the Savior. I need Christ in my life to forgive me of my sins. I trust him now. And with all that you have within you, you trust him. You welcome him into your life. But for Christians, mourn the sin and ask God, God, would you create in me a clean heart? And here's what I know. If you'll do that, 
you will be comforted. While keeping in the spirit of prayer with their heads bowed, I'm going to ask the servers to prepare to distribute the elements. Would uh, servers go and and uh, prepare to distribute the communion elements? But where you're seated, you continue to ask the Lord, Lord, show me the way in my life that I would walk in a way that would honor you. And as the elements are distributed, uh, Lord, may you do a work in our hearts to clean out, help us to do self-examination, maybe like never before. Create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. That's our prayer. David's prayer of old and our prayer today. And if you would, distribute the elements, please. Almighty God in heaven, uh, it's with uh, gratitude that we hold these elements and thank you for Christ our Savior, who became our Savior the day he died upon the cross, but became ours for real the day we embraced him in faith. We mourn our sin.
and we rejoice that you have forgiven us. May we be serious with our sin, we pray, and live as holy people. For it was the breaking of your son's body that provided that salvation. We remember that today with this bread, even as we eat. And we remember that this is not a cheap offering. This cost his life blood. And so even as we drink of the cup, we do so in remembrance of him living as holy people, we pray in Jesus' name. Gracious Father in heaven, may we be people who mourn for real, we, are, we don't have what it takes. We are desperate for you. And because we're desperate for you, we find our only comfort comes from you. May we be people who tuck in close uh, to the cross, we pray in the Savior's name. Amen.